Psalm 90 has ministered more to me this week than many passages in recent months and memory. I think part of that is because from the vantage point that I'm in, um, you, get, you get a first-hand look at the pain, the suffering, the brokenness in the church. There are so many here who are sick, um, cancer, sick with um, illness. There's a lot of suffering and a lot of burdened people. And Psalm 90, I think, really gave me a lot of encouragement for that. And so if you're here today and, and you're tired, you're weary, if your life isn't where you thought it would be, if this isn't what you expected, if you find yourself in a strange and foreign land, take heart. Moses has gone before us, and Moses has written a song for us to give us counsel and instruction in light of this. So we're going to read Psalm 90, the first psalm of book four of the psalms, and then we will dive in. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or even had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the early morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord God, you are our God. And so, Lord, it is our prayer that you would give us hearts of wisdom so that we might learn to number our days, that we might think about you, and that we would turn to you and cry out to you. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 90 not only is the opening psalm of book four of the Psalms, it's also the only psalm that Moses wrote. In addition to this, Moses does have two other songs, one in Exodus 15 after the crossing of the Red Sea, and another at the end of Deuteronomy, but this is the only psalm in the book of Psalms. 
It's placement. It's not accidental. If you can look back and remember where we were at the end of our last study of book three of the Psalms, it ended on a very bleak note. Psalm 89, if you will recall, is that great psalm where the covenant to David is celebrated, where the psalmist, for the first two-thirds of the psalm, you get no note of the sorrow that is coming. It's just rehearsing and announcing all of God's promises to David in the Davidic covenant. And then the psalm on a dime turns and announces the failure, the apparent failure of all those promises. And so what the psalm in essence says is, praise God for he promised this, but he did that. And Psalm 89 doesn't attempt to resolve that tension. It's just broken there and ends there. And I think it signifies, as we're reading through the psalms, the, the, the failure of the monarchy, the failure, the split kingdom, and ultimately the captivity. And, and so the compiler of the psalms, not accidentally, puts Psalm 90 as the very next psalm. I like to think of the Israelites in, in captivity. In the very next psalm they read, the Psalm of Moses. And so we're to dive in looking at this, looking at how to live with and in light of God, how to make sense of the suffering and the death in this world and, and how to respond to it. We're going to do it in four points. First, verses 1 to 2, the eternal Lord is our dwelling place. The eternal Lord is our dwelling place. And, and the psalm opens on a very bright note. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And this notion of dwelling place to Moses is no small thing. If you can remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, he promised him a seed and a blessing and a land. And then nearly 400 years later, as the Israelites are held captive in Egypt as slaves, and they cry out to God, and the Lord remembers, and the Lord hears, and the Lord sees, and the Lord feels compassion, and he appears to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. And he sends Moses and he redeems the people. But the exodus from Egypt is not just leaving from something, but going to something. And after Sinai, they're just supposed to go take the promised land. And the people get to Kadesh Barnea and they send out the 12 spies and 10 were bad and two were good. It's a very helpful song. 10 were bad and two were good. And they... they they listen to the bad report, and they, they grumble, and they shrink back. And so what happens? That entire generation wanders around the wilderness for 40 years until everyone who's an adult or older is dead, except for Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And so what started out as a marvelous, triumphant exit from Egypt with a cataclysmic showdown over Pharaoh's army quickly becomes a death march, quickly becomes punishment, wandering around in the desert, never having a place to call home, never ultimately setting up camp, just constantly setting up camp and moving on, setting up camp and moving on, as one by one that generation dies off. 
This is a song I believe Moses wrote in that context. And so it opens with a word of hope. We're going to quickly get some discouragement in the middle before we end with hope again. But the hope is this. For a people who are looking for a land, for a people who are looking for a possession, who are looking for this promised land, Moses encourages himself with the truth that ultimately the Lord is our dwelling place. The Lord is our dwelling place. You can imagine how that truth might minister to Israelites in Babylon. You know, how can we relate to the Lord when we're outside of the land? And the, the message is this. God has always been our God, even before we entered the land. The Lord has been our dwelling place. Does that mean that the Lord has been our dwelling place, our homeland, even when Israel was in slavery? Yes, it means that. Even in slavery, the Lord is our dwelling place. Yes. Does that mean the Lord has been our dwelling place when Israel was living high on the hog, when Joseph was in favor in Egypt? Yes, it does. Point A, he alone is our home. He alone is our home. Any promise of land in this life is, is but a shadow of the reality. I want you to listen to this. Even when ultimately they enter the land to take possession of it, Moses in his other song that he writes says this in Deuteronomy thirty three twenty seven, The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. The Lord is your dwelling place. And so if you remember, when Israel goes in to take possession of the land, the Lord wants to remind his people that this land isn't ultimately what it's all about. And so the tribe of Levi, if you remember, what, what inheritance of land does the tribe of Levi receive? None. Why is that? We read about that in Numbers 18.20. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. You initially think, that's bad news. That's a, that's a raw deal. Oh, no, it's not. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The tribe of Levi was singled out for honor, for prestige, they got a double portion of the Lord. The Lord was their inheritance. And so even when Israel takes possession of the land, the Lord ordains it so that there's a tribe that reminds the rest of the nation that ultimately this isn't about this land. It's ultimately about the Lord being our dwelling place, the Lord being our possession. Writing about this in Hebrews 11.10, recounting the lives of Abraham and the patriarchs, the author of Hebrews writes this, By faith, Abraham went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The Lord is our home. This earth is not our home. We're passing through. And this is equally true in times of prosperity and in times of want. The Lord is our home. He is our dwelling place. He has always been our dwelling place. And this is particularly poignant for Moses when you remember he never set foot inside the promised land. Right? He goes up on Mount Moriah and he dies. He gets to look at it. He gets to see it. One could argue that when he appears ministering to Jesus at the transfiguration is the first time he actually sets foot inside the land. So here's a man who for 40 years is looking forward to the land, looking forward to the land. Everyone else is going to perish, but the Lord has said that I can enter the land. And then because of his sin, the Lord says, no, you won't. 
And yet Moses knows ultimately God has not withheld the best thing from him. As good as that land was, God did not withhold the best thing from him because the Lord is his dwelling place. And if you're having hard times, if you're struggling, you, you gotta start there. You gotta understand this world is not your home. This world is not what we were made for ultimately. It's the Lord God who is our dwelling place. He alone is our home. And he alone is the everlasting God. And what an amazing statement in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I think being brought up in the psalm here at this point is to remind us that if the Lord has always been our dwelling place, that because he will always be, he will always continue to be our dwelling place. This is an amazing verse about the eternality of God, how he fills time. At the heart of his godhood is this notion of self-existence. I referenced it earlier, but you remember when the burning bush appears to Moses, the Lord tells Moses he will send him, and Moses replies, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. And tied up in God's name, and God's name ultimately is a revelation of his character and who he is, is this notion of self-existence. He is, he needs nothing outside of himself. What we learn as we keep reading the Bible is actually he is the wellspring of all life. He is the wellspring of all good things. He is the source of everything. The reason we exist, the reason these chairs exist, the reason this podium exists is because he is. He made the mountains. I'm sure in the Israelites' memory is Mount Sinai that shook and quaked. Before ever Mount Sinai rose, the Lord was. Before he made them from everlasting, as far back as you want to go, there is the Lord ising or aming, whatever you want to call it. He never becomes, he never comes into being. As far back as you go, there he is. I am who I am. So this God who is our home, this God who is our dwelling place, this God who is our homeland has always been and he will always be. And so this possession that we have is an eternal possession. And this is good news. This is really good news. If you're walking around in the desert watching everyone you know one by one die off. This is really good news. If you're captive in Babylon, hearing word that the temple was destroyed and looted by Nebuchadnezzar. But it's also really good news if you're in this sin-cursed fallen world experiencing suffering if your life isn't where you thought it would be. You can imagine Moses, and they left on such a high note with such great expectations. You watch the waters divide and devour your enemies, and we're gonna go get this land. Hopes were high and very quickly shattered due to their sin. And so Moses starts by taking comfort that God is our home, our dwelling place. And you might think that that would make everything wonderful, and it should, and when we see it will ultimately, but there's a problem that, point two, even though the Lord is our dwelling place, yet our days are few and feeble. Our days are few and feeble. You see that in verses three to six. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight. 
are but as yesterday when it is past. There is a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Our days are few and feeble. Three things here. We see so clearly in verse 3 that we are finite and mortal. And that phrase, you say, you to return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, is a reference to the curse in Genesis 3.19 where the Lord says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we see the scope of this contrast. Before the mountains were formed, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And we return to dust. Now, that's a problem. We are finite and mortal, and he inhabits eternity. How, how do you live with a God who is eternal when we are but mobilized dust? You think of Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Where does God live? He lives in eternity. I don't. I return to dust. He inhabits eternity. And consequently then, in verses 5 to 6, point C here, our lives are short and vain. Our lives are short and vain. And again, this has got to ring true for Moses. The vanity, the, the waste, the sense of loss, just marching around in circles. You're not even going anywhere. Just marching around in circles pointlessly as people one by one die off. Our lives are short and vain. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. And the point is this. Not only is life short, not only do we return to dust, he's eternal and we are not, but life starts with such promise. It starts with such hope and optimism. When you're young and when you're strong, you have dreams and you have visions, and, and then life turns out a little differently. And you're not where you thought you'd be at 30. You're not where you thought you'd be at 40. Life isn't what you expected. It wasn't what was promised. Moses did not leave Egypt expecting to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so like this grass that comes out in the morning that looks promising and then the, the desert sun comes out and scorches it, it dies away. It has all this promise and yet it's vain. You think of Job 14. This is Job speaking. A verse often read at funerals. Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. You know, I think of one of, one of my favorite poets, T.S. Eliot, and the poem, The Hollow Men, closes this way. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Man who has such great promise passes away like grass drying up. For all the dreams and all the hopes and all the plans get frustrated and wither. Because our days are few and feeble. And then Moses reveals why is it? Why, why do we return to dust? Why is our life so vain and frustrated? 
Point three. For we perish under his just anger. We perish under his just anger. It's already been alluded to by the quotation of Genesis 3.19 and the curse, why this is the case. But now Moses makes the point explicit because God is angry at our sin. We are sinners. Death is a judgment on sin. The fact that we die proves we are sinners. And it's a judgment. It was not the way things originally were planned. It's not the way things were before sin. But it's the way things are now. In verses 7 to 8, Moses explains that the Lord, he sees all our secret sins. Verse 7, for we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The Lord sees our hearts. There's no fooling the Lord. Not only is the Lord eternal, ageless, but he's omniscient. He knows everything. And he knows every evil thought that you and I have had. He knows every corrupt motive. He sees everything. It is laid out clearly in his sight. If you're even halfway honest here today, you recognize that if God really sees what's going on inside your heart, we deserve to die. I don't think there's anyone here who wouldn't run from me in horror if they really saw the inner workings of my heart. And the Lord sees it. And that, he says, is why we perish. And not only does the Lord see our sin, the Lord is angry at our sin. Oh, yes, he's loving, and we will get to his grace at the end of this psalm, but I think all too quickly, when we talk of God's anger, we just brush it away with grace. Let's just pause here and understand this. An entire generation of Israelites, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, perished slowly, painfully, in the desert because the Lord was angry with their sin. Now, even in that judgment, there's mercy because these Israelites have up to 40 years to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to not forfeit their souls. But that judgment, he did not relent from because God is provoked and angry with sin. We get that. We get angry when people wrong us. If you've ever cursed someone out, if you've ever struck someone because they angered you, you, you get the concept of do me wrong and I will repay you. Well, if that's true with us, how much more is it true with the one who made us, who gave us life? Now, when we wrong him, he will repay. Scripture says vengeance is mine, and so we perish under his anger. That also means that everyone who's ever died perished because the Lord had judged them. Ultimately, the, the ultimate hand behind all death is the living God's, who boldly declares that he gives life and he takes life. And Moses recognizes that. He recognizes, he owns up to the reality, the reason why life is hard, the reason why life is vain, the reason why we perish is ultimately, at the end of the day, our fault. It's our fault. Now, this, this psalm would be a real downer if it ended here. Now keep pressing through with me. There is hope at the end. But we've got to look the problem square in the face. The Lord is our dwelling place. He's who we were made for. We're not made for this land. We're not made for this place. But we have a problem because we perish and our life is vain and our hopes soar and they are dashed. And ultimately, when you look that in the face, you see it's because the Lord knows our hearts. We can't fool him. I can fool you. I can put on a happy face and for brief periods of time, I can fool you. I can't fool him. 
You can't fool him. You aren't fooling him. And he knows. He knows. Our secret sins. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12 too. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And then speaking even more clearly, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Lord knows. Next we see, not only does he see our sins, but we have no escape or excuse. We have no escape or excuse. There's no avoiding the account. There's no avoiding the reckoning. And we have no excuse. Verses nine to 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. You know, 10 out of 10 people die. But we'll get to it. We don't think about this. I mean, just jump ahead to verse 11. We don't think about this. And, you, and say that, and you, you chuckle. You know, the cemetery is full of people who never meant to end up there. There's no escaping it. We keep telling ourselves we put it off and we put it off and we put it off. Dealing with these things. If you're average, you've got 70 years, maybe 80 before you face the judge. You've got 70 years, maybe 80 to do whatever toil you're going to do under the sun. But you cannot escape God's judgment. We like to think that our medicines are so advanced. The average lifespan is about the same now as it was back then. You see that, right? You hear these statistics that during the Middle Ages or earlier, the average lifespan is 30. That's only because they factor in infant mortality. When you eliminate infant mortality, our medicine has done a great job of saving babies and children's lives. Our medicine is very effective at that. But when you remove infant mortality, once you made it to teenage years, on average, you're going to live 70 or 80 years, which is about what people live now. So we like to... We like to uh, compliment ourselves that we're never going to die and we're going to push that barrier out further. We haven't really pushed it very far. We haven't really pushed it very far. And here's the next point to consider, verse 11. And here's, here's the, uh, the real problem. We all naturally ignore these things. We don't like to think about them. I'm sure there are people here today right now that are uncomfortable. Understand, we are all facing death and judgment in the face. Some of us closer than others, but, we're all, but in light of God, it's a blink of an eye for us. Right? We might as well argue about who's going to jump higher and closer to the moon. In light of God's eternity, it's just a blink of an eye for each and every one of us. And we don't want to think about these things. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And it's a rhetorical question with the assumed answer, no one. We don't naturally want to think about these things. It's depressing. It's discouraging. We want to get back to our vain hopes of the things we'll accomplish, the things we will do, the great deeds that we will work. This is why Solomon in Ecclesiastes comments that it's better to go to a funeral than a party. 
It's absolutely what he says. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 to 4. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face, that sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Why is it better to go to a funeral than a wedding reception? Funeral is one of the few places where we might actually start thinking about some of these things. And a wise person's thinking about it. We don't want to think about these things. We don't want to think that we've offended the almighty creator of the universe. That all of us are abiding under his judgment and wrath. That's why we die. And when people get sick, we don't just think, oh, this is a result of sin. This is judgment. This is judgment. And not all judgment is eternal judgment. There's certainly the possibility for these Jews wandering around to be saved, to repent, to return. But it's an earthly judgment. And even those of us who know the Lord and are redeemed and born again, we will suffer that earthly judgment because we are sinners. We will die if the Lord does not tarry. We don't want to think about these things. It's amazing how we will put off thinking about these things. I know I did. And there are probably some here today who have never really looked square in the face. The obvious, obvious fact, you're going to die. Put that alongside of the fact that the Lord knows every thought and every secret and hidden thing you've done, and you've got a problem. Now, there's good news coming. But the good news is no good news if you don't recognize the problem. So I'm just stalling here so that you feel the weight of this. Which brings us to the beginning of the cure, the beginning of our way out. The pivot here, verse 12. He must teach us how to live and think in light of this. He must te- we need to be taught by him what to make of all this. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is confusing. This is difficult. This is troubling. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't think about this is we don't know how to think our way out of it. It's just bleak. We're going to die. We're going to be forgotten. Like so many other millions of people and civilizations on the planet, time will keep moving. We will return to dust. Game over. We need the Lord to teach us how to make sense of this, how to respond to this, that we can number our days, so we can make our days count. We've just seen the Lord's endless from eternity past to eternity future. We've got maybe 70, maybe 80 years. So how do we order them? How do we number them? We need a heart of wisdom. And ultimately, there's only one sane response to all of this. Point four, we must cry out to him for grace. So we must cry out to him for grace. And you'll notice now, this final section of the psalm, all it is is request. It's request after request after request. If you keep, if you count in the request for teaching, there's seven of them. And what requests indicate is there's nothing on our own we can do. There is nothing in our own strength and our own wisdom we can do to alleviate this problem. We cannot fix this. No matter how far medicine advances, no matter how far um, we go in our acquisition of wisdom and knowledge, we will not find a cure for death and for the vanity of life. We're not suddenly somehow going to make all this go on its head. So we cry out because we are in need. Understand that. The solution is I need. It's humbling. It's not I do. I call upon God. Let's look at him. Verse 13. Here, here are blanks. 
First, crying out to God for grace. Save us, O Lord, and return to us in mercy. Save us, O Lord, and return to us in mercy. Look at that, verse 13. Return, O Lord. This harks back to verse 3. In verse 3, God says to man, return to dust. And here, Moses cries out to the Lord, return to us. Before you return us to dust, return to us. This, these final verses redeem, fix so much of what's gone wrong earlier. Return to us and have pity on us. Forgive us. Save us. We, we can't dig our way out of this hole. He doesn't promise, do it because I'll do stuff for you. He doesn't promise to do great deeds for us. It's just, it's just a heartfelt cry. It's what we saw in our song this morning, that a broken spirit and a contrite heart will not be despised by God. Moses has recognized his sinfulness and guilt, his frailty, his weakness. He brings nothing to the table for bargaining chips. He just cries out, return, have mercy, please, O Lord. By the way, this is also the first time where God's covenant name, that I am name, enters the song. In verse 1, he's called Lord, which is Adonai. In your English Bibles, when you see Lord not in all caps, it's Adonai. When you see God, as you do at the end of verse 2, it's Elohim. And when you see the Lord in all caps, like you do in verse 13 there, that's, that's, that's God's special covenant name, Yahweh. So he cries out to God's covenant special name, intimate name, return, save us, have mercy on us. And so if, if you're here today and, and, and you're feeling the weight of sin and you're feeling the futility and the vanity and the frailty of life, if, if you're not where you thought you'd be, if your life didn't turn out the way you expected, if, if you fear judgment, and you should, if the Lord has taught you at least even now for a few minutes to think about these things, follow Moses' example and cry out for salvation. Cry out that the Lord would return and take pity on you. And me. Next, satisfy us with your gospel love all our days. Satisfy us with your gospel love all our days. And we're, that's the very next request, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now that word steadfast love, at least in the ESV, is the phrase they consistently use to translate God's covenant loyal love. See, God is said to love all humans. He's said to love his creation. He's said to love the birds and the trees. But only of those who know him through the gospel, only through those who are united by faith, does he put his steadfast love upon his chesed, his loyal, never-ending, never-giving-up love. It's gospel love. This is the love reserved for those who are united by faith to him. And so, again, we've got another redeeming of things. Verse 5, this grass comes up in the morning with promise, and it withers. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, before we wither, before we ultimately fall away, cause us to delight in, cause us to be satisfied with. Let your gospel love be enough for us. Let your gospel love be enough for us. He doesn't say, satisfy us with the land that you're taking us to. Doesn't even say satisfy us with manna. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. 
And so that, that's part of the answer. That the, all of us are still going to die at various paces. The gospel isn't the promise that no, no, you'll be healthy and wealthy. There, there are churches and teachers that say if you have enough faith, you'll be cured of anything. We're, we're still all going to die if the Lord tarries. But what makes this right, what makes this good, is the promise that if we have trusted in God, and on this side of the cross, it's through his son, through his son's work on the cross, that we can have satisfaction all of these days. The days don't have to be dreary. The days don't have to be hard. Satisfying the morning of their steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That means you can rejoice and be glad marching around the wilderness watching everyone die. Yes, you can if you're satisfied with God's steadfast love. You can rejoice in this sin-cursed, fallen world, suffering, perishing. Yes, you can if you find the gospel satisfying. If you find God's love expressed through Jesus dying on the cross satisfying, yes, you can. Which moves then also to make us glad. It's tied up in this notion of satisfaction for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Satisfy us. Make us glad. Let your love and your gospel be enough. Moses doesn't ask that the Lord change his circumstances. He doesn't ask that he take the judgment away. If I've only got 70 or 80 years of my vain life, and if I'm going to return to dust, oh Lord, sooner rather than later, would you make me be satisfied with who you are for me? Now we're getting back to this notion that the Lord is our dwelling place. Moses left Egypt thinking he was going to get a dwelling place. He doesn't get to touch it. He can see it. But the Lord is his dwelling place. And then he prays, Lord, let that be enough for me. Satisfy me with that. Point C, verse 16. Show us your mighty works and glorious power. Show us your mighty works and glorious power. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Now, we're going to get to the notion of the Israelites' work. But first, Lord, show us what you do. Show us your saving works. This is part of the way that you get satisfied with God's steadfast love. As you meditate, as you look to, as you see what God has done, his mighty works. It's not, it's not about us. It's about him. One of the ways to fight discouragement, to think about the mighty things God has done for us. Think about the cross. Think about the resurrection. Think about the exodus from Egypt. Think about all the good things God has done. He might show us his mighty works and glorious power. And then verse 17, shine upon us with your favor and delight. And now, finally, notice Moses' order again, by the way. Save us satisfy us with you. Show us what you've done. And only now, oh Lord, let your favor be upon us. Your pleasure be upon us. Now that you've forgiven us, would you, would you delight in us? Shine upon us, bless us, and ultimately, point E, strengthen us and establish the work of our hands. Our life is filled with toil and is short next to the everlasting God. But, oh, Lord, if you would teach us to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom, then we would know the only sane thing we can do is to cry out to you for mercy and for help. 
And then, oh Lord, let your gospel love be enough and show us what you've done and turn and have your favor upon us. And only then can Moses make the request that the Lord would give grace so that with the little time that we have, the work of our hands would stand. We would know how to spend our years and our days, that we would be blessed and strengthened in the labor and the work that we do. This is how Moses makes sense of wandering around for 40 years. This is the psalm that the compiler of the psalms puts as the answer to Psalm 79. This is God's word for us, his comfort for us. If you know the Lord, if you're united by faith, take heart. He is your home. He is your dwelling place. He will always be. There is no ultimate promise of prosperity in this life, but rather you can have joy. You can have satisfaction satisfaction in who God is. Now, we want the satisfaction in the stuff. Lord, I'll be satisfied if I get the new car. No, you won't. No, I won't. The only, the only thing that truly satisfies is the living God. And as we grow in our knowledge of what he's done, we become more satisfied, and only then we're in a position to live our lives so that they'll count, to live our lives not wasting them away. We don't want to waste our life in the few precious days that we have. So as we prepare for a time of communion, I just want us to, to close our eyes and to pray. The Lord would help us to teach us this lesson, and that he would give grace, that he would return, that he would shine, that he would have mercy. Oh, Lord God, you have been our dwelling place. And you will always be. You are the one to whom we have to do. And yet we tremble because you are eternal and timeless and we are dust. And not only that, Lord, but we are sinful dust. And you know it full well. And you are angry at us. Oh, Lord. Give us hearts of wisdom so that we would cry out to you, so that we would not run from you, but to you. Have mercy, return, forgive us. Strengthen us. Satisfy us with your love and who you are and who you are for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us look to him and to his death, not to our own feeble, frail works. Oh, Lord, satisfy us with your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.